You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach in sunny Santa Monica. Um, we have a great show for you today. We want to um, please be seated. Uh, and um, we're going to be talking about privacy with none other than the, um, the paragon of privacy from Providence, Robert Ellis Smith, who publishes the Privacy Journal. And uh, he's been on the show a number of times, and we got a number of big developments to talk about. So we're going to just jump right in. Robert's uh, time is short today. and um, But we're going to start off, if, for those of you who we've talked earlier about the FTC's development um, battle with Wyndham Hotels, um, they, were, they filed a, a complaint against them for having um, being deceptive and um, unfair and having inadequate security. Um, and failing to respond to several security breaches, and Wyndham challenged the FTC's authority over the data security area, and there was a, a major assault extensively briefed, and um, this week the, um, the federal judge in New Jersey came back and said no. Um, the, the complaint goes forward, the FTC authority is intact, but it is not a settled issue. So, um, Robert, welcome to the show. Good to join you again, Ben. Always good to have you. And um, so what was your take on the Wyndham ruling? Well, businesses that uh, have personal information um, in their files were watching this one very closely. I'm not sure that it was a winner uh, from the beginning, but uh, essentially the main privacy protection that consumers have in this country is the Federal Trade Commission Act, which goes back prior to World War II and, among other things, is 
most people know, it prohibits uh, deceptive advertising, and uh, it, it it came about in a time of uh, false claims about products and uh, consumer ripoffs and that sort of thing. But it's taken on new life in the, the new age of uh, of uh, data security. And the Federal Trade Commission, which is in this show alone, there really is no other federal agency that's looking after this, says that if you promise consumers that you've got a secure data system and it turns out that that's not true. They call that deceptive advertising or unfair trade practice under the Federal Trade Commission law. And that's what this was all about. I think it's called Section 5. And yes. Wyndham Hotel said, uh, you know, there's no authority for that. That was intended to prohibit uh, false claims uh, in advertising and, and uh, scams against com- consumers and the like. And that's true. That was the origination of, of the law. But uh, this court said, um, no, it, it, it can be used uh, – to show that there was deception or an unfair trade practice, if once you publish a privacy policy, either you don't abide by it or it, your claims turn out to be inflated, then that can be a violation of that law. And it's interesting because I think the the alarming aspect was that if Wyndham had won, what protection you know or what um, stake would there really be to um, have really tough um, data security measures? Yeah, well, there's not much. It's a Fair Credit Reporting Act, which does regulate the provision of uh, personal information to companies uh, by uh, some credit bureau that is gathering information uh, as a regular practice. But uh, there would be uh, very little stick. I think it would have required new legislation, and whether the Congress is even capable of doing that, I I doubt. So uh, I I, I think that the uh, authority of the Federal Trade Commission has been tested before, and I don't think it was really worried that this would be shot down, but uh, there was a real possibility. It would have retarded uh, privacy protection enforcement against businesses by a good 20 years if the court had ruled the other way. I think so. And but you could tell that this was a, a major battle um, with the way that the briefing was extended. Um, and just all the, the, the people that involved, got involved on the amicus level, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, and you know, business really made this a pitch battle. And so it really became a crucial one to win. But, you know, the ruling was quite narrow. The, the ruling was, um, you know, we're only deciding it based on this at this stage. Uh, we're not deciding liability. And we're not necessarily saying the FTC has a blank check to go ahead and um, file Section 5 cases anytime there's a data breach. Yeah, that's true. I can visualize some hacking into a system. That would not be an unfair trade practice if the company had taken reasonable precautions, number one, or number two, not claimed that it uh, had a secure system. Uh, so it is narrow in, in that respect, yes. Uh, and although, I mean, widely watch this case. I, I, I put it in the category of cases that uh, have come up through the appellate level involving environmental protection, campaign financing, affirmative action, principles that we thought were pretty well settled during the more activist 80s and 90s now are being questioned. And this could have been one. It may go to the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court by a narrow majority could, could take a very narrow view of this. It's possible. And, and that's a good analogy. I mean, basically we are seeing that things that we thought were settled law, um, you know, kind of going the other way when you have an activist you know, Supreme Court taking the opportunity to um, roll things back. And so, yeah, I mean, that'd be interesting to see. Obviously, this is just a district court level. And, um, you know, I've 
I forget to what extent they have the ability to appeal at this stage. I suppose they could, um, but or so, they could go um, ahead and lose the case and then appeal. It, it, I'm exactly. not sure either which way it would be. Yes. But it's, you know, it's, it's an important win. And, and, and also at the same time, we saw um, just a week, a week earlier, the FTC entered consent decrees with um, Fandango, the, um, obviously the, the, the movie ticketing company, and um, as well as um, Credit Karma, um, because of their mobile apps, failed to provide um, adequate um, SSL protection. They didn't encrypt um, the data that was you know, transferred through the SSL um, socket. So um, here you have a question: you know, the use, the expanding use of mobile apps, but not providing the, the adequate security to go with it, and not explaining that to the consumers. Yeah, it was really the uh, Attorney General in California that led the way on on this principle that uh, they have a more advanced law preventing uh, data security breaches, or at least requiring notification to individuals when they are the subject of a breach of security, as in the case of Target or Neiman Marcus or some of the other well-known cases we've had. And uh, Attorney General of California ruled about a year ago that this applies to apps as well as uh, data in in huge databases. So that's something we've got to contend with uh, going forward now. And what was interesting in the uh, fin- in both you know Fandango and Credit Karma was there actually was a conscious decision to override default settings that that rendered the um, the systems vulnerable. And um, I'll specifically point out they they said they rendered them vulnerable to man in the middle attacks and that they actually disabled a default process known as a SSL certificate validation, which would have verified the app's communications were secure. And um, the FTC didn't just do that. They also um, provided a blog post um, that provided extensive information as to what we're looking for from developers, but I thought was useful. Um, and uh, the one of them, which I thought the first rule I thought was very interesting, um, was ex- exercise extreme care when modifying security results, uh, security defaults. And the second one actually was one I wanted to highlight, was test your app thoroughly before releasing it. And they quote the, the old adage from Carpenter's, measure twice, cut once. And um, so, but it's on the FTC blog, and actually um, we, we've, we posted a link to it, um, an excerpt of it as well, on our blog at cyberlawradio.com. Um, so, I mean, it's it, it they're they're trying to give guidance to the industry here. This is somewhat of a new area, um, but you know, clearly, mobile apps are going to be watched. Yeah, that is true. We haven't seen that from the FTC so much, nor actually from other federal agencies. They've always been very reluctant to give guidance. Uh, I think that's not true of the SEC, but most most others are, and uh, the FTC is starting to do that now because this is a complicated field. Uh, one area that I was most interested in. Uh, in my newsletter this month, I just featured it, was uh, an information from the Federal Trade Commission from a technology advisor they just hired uh, to give them advice in new technology. She's uh, Latanya Sweeney from Harvard, very well regarded in the privacy community, and she has uh, developed a map that traces all the flows of, of medical information throughout our society and showed that uh, only half of those uh, depositories, those resting places for medical data, are covered by the federal confidentiality law on uh, medical information. She also showed that, uh, and this is important, I think, 
that information that's released and thought to be anonymous can be de-anonymized. That's a new word we all have to learn now. But you can take that information that is anonymous, has no names, no social security numbers, and through a computer compare it with another known list. What she did was she took uh, uh, information that's freely released by Washington State, as it is in other states, about hospitalizations, uh, the diagnoses, the treatment, the length of stay, the doctor involved, how the bill was paid, how much it cost, all of that is publicly releasable. And, of course, in a cumulative basis, that is very helpful information for tracking uh, health outcomes. Um, but all she did was to take uh, digital records of the local newspapers, and every time the word hospitalized was mentioned, she uh, took note of the name and the date of the hospitalization so that she could compare that with the anonymous discharge information, put them together and figure out the names and, and identities of those people and what their diagnoses and what their uh, ailments were. Pretty remarkable. Amazing, and that's yeah. the point she's trying to make, yeah. And the term is called de-anonymization. Uh, in the early days when she first brought this to everybody's attention, it was called inferential disclosure. In other words, that identities can be disclosed inferentially even if the name is not, not there in black and white. It's an example of what you spoke about, the FTC trying to be prospective, trying to give companies advice to stay out of trouble. And, you know, and, and when it comes to medical data, that is, seems to be, I think, the most sensitive area in, in terms of privacy. One, obviously, because it's, it, it's this is the most personal. Um, but also, you know, as a, on a business level, I mean, your doctors have everything they have your your medical history and they have your financial history so it is like the mother load for those with malintent and 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 there's so much you know that can go wrong there and so you know seeing this type of vulnerability is very disturbing yeah i think there are three aspects of medical information that make it special one is in many cases it's very very embarrassing uh, that can't always be said of financial information and, and the like. Second, it's quite often information you can't change. You can't tell somebody, well, if there's a stigma uh, attached to you because you had a heart attack or you have cancer, you can't go out and change that status as you can with your right. uh, credit information if you need to. And, and lastly, it is an area like credit that can deprive you of uh, of a job. More importantly, it can cause you to be fired once you do have a job if that becomes publicly known. So that's why we have to give special uh, sensitivity, special attention to, to medical information. And it's worth noting that the Federal Trade Commission doesn't even have authority uh, to regulate the uh, protection of medical information. That's in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So here they are not only expanding their mandate to uh, enforce privacy protections, <laughs> but they're, they're moving ahead in, in very deep discussions about medical information where they, in fact, have no jurisdiction. Now, the Europeans, which have much more developed privacy protocol than we do, they look to the FTC as sort of the lead agency in the U.S. on, on privacy, and domestically we do that a little bit too. So just uh, that's just happened gradually over the years now. The FTC is the lead agency in privacy protection. Well, and also I think something has happened, I think, in you know, that hasn't occurred before historically, in that the FTC now has commissioners. You know, let's back up a minute. You know, the FTC 
historically has had two main roles. One is um, to approve mergers and acquisitions, and the other is on the consumer protection front. And so a lot of people who came to the FTC came from more of an antitrust background. I mean, I actually was started my career at a firm founded by an FTC commissioner, and that, that firm was based on antitrust law. And now, as we get into this, you know, this new area in the internet, um, we're actually seeing, you know, um, commissioners whose background isn't antitrust, but their background is privacy. I mean, we have, I believe, two commissioners with background in privacy. So um, it's an interesting development. I'm gonna get get your feedback on that in a second, but first we're gonna take a a short break. And uh, this is you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report on WebmasterRadio.fm, available on iHeartRadio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. And a bit. There are many things we would love to catch. Catching the final out of a baseball game. And that's the ball game. Reeling that big catch of the day. Or catching a ride home. Taxi! How about catching more attention, like the biggest retail brands on earth? Introducing Catchy.com, where they sell short-branded, attractive.com domain names. Use a short and catchy brand, just like Sony, Visa, and Nike for your next business venture. You can even rent to own for as low as $100 a month. Catch a big break for your business with Catchy.com. WebmasterRadio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Engage with our panel of on-air experts and peers by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn, so you can reach us before and after every program. We also feature our exclusive real-time chat room, where we welcome all listeners to engage with our show hosts during every live show. You can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on air or on demand from our website or through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Interact and stay informed by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for WebmasterRadio.fm. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Mobilizing your marketing efforts. Welcome to Mobile Presence. Discover the best practices for tracking and targeting mobile marketing. Mobile Presence, on demand anytime, inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Talking about privacy with Robert Ellis Smith. Um, he's at the, the Privacy Journal in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, Robert's um, been with us many times. And he's also an author on the subject of Block Island. 
um, a beautiful island off the coast of Rhode Island, which you haven't been to, you, you should definitely visit. Um, we were just starting to talk about um, a little about some of the newer developments in privacy, and um, so Robert, um, in Europe, there seems to be major changes coming on. Oh no, I'm sorry. We, before we broke, we were talking about the change in the FTC and the fact that the makeup now includes um, commissioners who have a privacy background. And that in itself changes how they approach things. Yeah, notably Julie Brill, who was an assistant attorney general in Vermont and did a lot of um, uh, pioneering work in in privacy uh, protection. She's uh, now uh, on the commission, and I think she probably was instrumental in getting that chief technologist hired. Uh, This is not the first one to be hired. They had a chief technologist a couple of years ago, too. One other thing, as you spoke, that uh, I thought about was Federal Trade Commission used to go after kind of fly-by-night operations, you know, who had shady dealings with consumers and advertising. Now, because of its privacy mandate, it's going after the big companies, uh, Facebook and and, and Google, uh, notably, but also Wyndham Hotels. Uh, A lot of large companies now have... Uh, faced um, uh, sanctions by the Federal Trade Commission. About five years ago, they began uh, uh, levying fines for privacy violations, and those are start starting to get bigger and bigger. At the same time, over at the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, they have an office for civil rights that enforces the uh, federal uh, uh, confidentiality uh, rule for for medical records, and uh, they too are issuing fines uh, for violations. So um, it is it is changing, and I think uh, but, and I think that but you were right. There are people that they do look to the FTC for leadership. But there's also you know hiring a technologist. I noticed in Washington, state of Washington, their attorney general's office um, a few years back upgraded. They decided to create a cyber unit within the attorney general's office, and they um, and they purposely hired technology people as well as lawyers. And so, you know, it seems to be in this day, and obviously in, in regulating the internet, you can't do without it. Now, I'd like to jump a little bit to, um, Europe. And, um, unfortunately, it's just going to be virtually. <laughs> um, so the, the Europe is, is moving forward in, in updating their data privacy standards. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as most Americans, I hope, realize now, Europe is really a united uh, nation. The United States of Europe is a very accurate description, and it has a parliament that covers all the nations. They're elected by uh, uh, people in each nation, but um, their new laws have uh, applicability throughout all of the member states. And there's a a court, too, that uh, does the very same thing. They issued a decision... uh, just this week that that says that uh, a uh, law issued by the European Parliament is invalid because it would require communications commissioners uh, communications uh, companies to store uh, data on on telephone users uh, for two years <clears throat> that uh, really does fly in the face of uh, a treaty that applies to all European nations with regard to data protection and privacy. Europeans call it data protection. We call it privacy. It's mm-hmm. essentially the same thing. Uh, their uh, data protection laws cover every possible record and every possible business. Ours don't. We just cover segments of the economy that we think are most sensitive with regard to personal information. So uh, we'll see where that goes. The, the European Court has said that 
it is uh, invalid to require telephone companies to keep uh, information up to two years on on uh, individual customers. And and that has been a push, you know, here in terms of uh, law enforcement. They've actually sought to have ISPs and phone companies keep records for a period of time. But what is the current state of affairs in terms of the requirements? Domestically uh, in the United US. States. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. I believe there is no required retention period for uh, calling data. But uh, as we all know, uh, the NSA has developed the capability to capture that information and now claims to have it uh, on uh, every single telephone user in the United States, whether a cell user or a user of a, a stable phone, uh, a landline phone. Uh, so uh, that's being debated right now. The president has suggested that NASA not save that information, but telephone companies be required to save it and make it available to NSA when NSA uh, has, a, has shown a need to know. That means that the European decision will have some influence here in this country, I would think. Um, can the government require data retention? Um, I think to the extent that it has in the past, it's been very minor. This would be a massive data retention, and uh, so far uh, uh, I don't know of any precedent where a governmental order requires companies to keep information. Um, if you a company chooses to destroy information that uh, supports its tax returns, it does so at its own risk, but I don't believe right. it's actually required to store that information. That's true. Now, I, I, I think Brazil recently abandoned, they had a similar provision where they wanted they wanted to force their ISPs to retain data for a certain period of time, and then I think they're backing away from that as well. Yeah, I'm not sure of that, but it shows a trend on both sides of the Atlantic, you know, after the terrorist attacks, that the way to... Uh, combat terrorism is to gather masses and masses of information. I'm not sure that's the right approach at all uh, because there is a concept called data pollution where there's just so much data that uh, agencies can't uh, can't analyze it, can't manipulate it, and can't compare it with what other agencies have. That was one big problem in uh, September of 2001 and since then, uh, connecting the dots. And we haven't gotten any better at uh, connecting the dots. And what you end up doing is having these requirements that uh, that would mandate the collection of information on 99% of the population that is innocent. And uh, whether it's more effective in getting that 1% of bad actors, who knows? I doubt that it is. Now, um, I know we only have a few minutes left. What is, where are we in terms of um, the EU safe harbor? Um, which, you know, for those unfamiliar, was an agreement worked out in 2001, the last time the um, the data privacy initiative was updated to um, allow data to be exchanged between the EU and the U.S. as long as U.S. companies, you know, certify that they were complying with the safe harbor. Yeah, that's right. It's run by the Department of Commerce, and the idea is if a company promises the U.S. government that it essentially will abide by all the principles in those European laws, then they continue can continue to bring information back to the U.S. from Europe. Otherwise, they'd have to get the permission of a European data commissioner each time they did so. I don't think it's been very successful. There's been a recent study that actually the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which we were just talking about, uh, highlighted. And that yes, is I mean, there are many. There are a lot of companies that are claiming that they abide by the safe harbor and they're not even members of it, including, I think, two um, 
National Football League franchises yes. have, have made that claim. Um, well, and, one of uh, them did um, remarkably poorly in the Super Bowl. <laughs> how about that? Yeah. And the no, I don't know if it's the causation one. or not. We'll have to see. If Denver had know. a better privacy lawyer, maybe they would have won. But Right, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. Um, but is there is is there any is there hostility towards you know working continuing with the safe harbor in Europe? I know there have been some voices along those lines. Let's call it skepticism. Sure, the Europeans have been skeptical of it from the beginning, but they're even more skeptical uh, since it's been revealed that many companies are claiming they belong to it and don't. And that was disclosed by very deep research done in Australia, of all places. So, no, the European commissioners don't think very highly of uh, the safe harbor, and, and the Department of Justice has not been, excuse me, Department of Commerce has not been diligent in really enforcing strict standards. It'll let people sign up for, uh, you know, just filling out the paperwork. And, right, well, it is self-certification. Now, I know you have to go. Um, if, if people want to um, follow you or learn more about what you're up to, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, thanks very much. It's privacyjournal.net, and our email address is orders at privacyjournal.net. We're based in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'll be happy to send a sample copy to anybody or try to answer their questions. Uh, I could send them a copy of the April issue, which has a beautiful map on it showing where all of our medical information flows to. Wow. And you're, you're recently celebrating an anniversary for Privacy Journal? Was it 20 years? 40 years coming up in November. It's hard to believe. Yeah, I've been doing this for 39 and a half years, yes. Wow. Well, congratulations. And the issue, as you can imagine, thank you. The issue has changed a lot over the years, so I haven't gotten burned out. <laughs> That's good. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you, Robert, and uh, best of luck to you, and congratulations on your 40 years, and I uh, look forward to talking to you later in the year. Let's do it. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. So Robert um, is a very interesting man. He's been on the program several times, and actually he um, there's a little bit of trivia about him which we, um, we mentioned in our blog post, um, he actually um, was um, a decoy and um, where people, um, he, people confused him for President Kennedy at a, a Harvard-Yale football game in 1961 where he posed as President Kennedy, fooling the crowd um, to believing that, it was, um, that he was uh, the president and... Um, it was a famous stunt that he was able to pull off. But he also is, um, he does, as I mentioned, he does write a book about um, Block Island. And uh, so we have some information about that on the, the blog as well. But um, he's written a number of books on privacy. And you know, the, obviously the Privacy Journal is a very well-respected um, publication in this field. So always a pleasure to have Robert. And um, even better that he is from my hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, but we got a number of other developments um, to cover, um, some of which are um, of less consequence than others. So naturally, those are the ones we're going to start off with. And um, last week uh, was the feast day of St. Isidore Seville. And you're wondering, who the hell is he? And, uh, well, St. Isidore of Seville was the um, Bishop of Seville, but in the 600s A.D., but he was also um, one of the first people to create encyclopedias. And so for that reason, apparently, he has become, um, or unofficially or officially, I'm quite not sure, the um, patron saint of the Vatican. 
I mean, supposed to be the patron saint of the internet, according to the Vatican. Um, and so, uh, I don't know what impact uh, uh, the feast day of, of Saint Isidore has for your or surfing on the internet, but it is just an amusing little feature to be aware of. Um, we, of course, celebrate it in due course by uh, doing a, a jib jab video and posting it on our blog. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so we get, I somehow, I just guys get a kick out of the fact that there's a patron saint for that, but apparently there's a patron saint for a whole host of strange things. And, um, so the internet is one of the least of them. Um, also another couple other developments in the news that we wanted to go over. One is I wanted to give a shout out and congratulations to the Rubicon project and going public last week. Um, they actually started off strongly and um, finished uh, they finished their first day above the initial price. And um, Rubicon Project is uh, an interesting company, and it, a lot of it um, is driven by its founder, Frank Adante. And uh, I, you know, I had the opportunity to present with him at South by Southwest a couple of years back and um, through my work with the company. And what was interesting is that the hardest part about the presentation was really just introducing Frank because – and concisely, because he's um, by that point he was just barely thirty, and he already was on his fifth startup. He's just had a remarkable uh, measure of success, and uh, but his approach to Rubicon is also part of the reason why it has succeeded. Um, he, he has a video that I strongly recommend of the the, the Rubicon Project headquarters and its office tour. Um, and we posted that on the Internet Law Center blog, um, at um, in ilccyberreport.com. And um, what's interesting is he, it sounds like a mundane topic, his office tour, is actually um, an exposition of his philosophy in terms of management and building teams. And uh, so actually that um, eight-minute video of the space, which you know, there is some cool features of it. It's a very um, modern space that was actually used for filming part of 24 and um, and actually knew the the company that went under beforehand that they were able to get it from, um, and so um, but he's talking a lot about you know his philosophy in terms of um, how companies should people should work together in the company. You know, there are no offices, you know, there are conference rooms. Um, some of the benefits, some of the the way it's laid out, how they approach things, how they reward people. I thought it was, it's very interesting, and, and that in itself may tell you a lot about why Rubicon succeeded in so quickly, and um, it's one of the, like, the fastest-growing ad tech company in history, or one of them, and um, it's always had a, a major role um, in, in, in the behavioral targeting space you know, right from its onset, and um, you know, Frank was, um, in 2011, Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year in Los Angeles, so he's definitely someone to watch, you know, no doubt, you know, having brought you know, now his fifth successful um, startup and Rubicon doing strong on Wall Street. Um, there are going to be some other ad tech uh, offerings on, on Wall Street as well later this year, and we're going to be watching them closely, but a uh, major congratulations to um, Frank Adante and the Rubicon team there. Um, in addition, um, today is a, a day of note um, for a couple of reasons. One is interesting here in Los Angeles, in that today is the day of the last uh, what they call red car train um, set sail. Um, at one point in time, L.A. had, as shocking as this may sound, 
LA had the largest network of um, trains and trolleys um, anywhere in the world, more so than even New York. And, and amazingly, it was a private system. But, but here's where it becomes a uniquely in L.A. story, because the, the trains were developed by the private company, um, Mr., uh, from a, um, Pacific Electric, and owned by um, a gentleman named Huntington, who you may know from the Huntington Museum. Um, it was designed um, not to bring people into the city, but bring them further out of the city. It was a way to, ironically, whereas a lot of people have used mass transit as a way to um, create density and to bring feed people to the city center. His vision was actually to use the trolley system as a way to feed people away from the city and to build um, you know, a more decentralized city by using the train system to get people back into the city with where their jobs may be. And so he viewed it as a way to fuel a housing boom in the suburbs. Um, and so what happened eventually, though, was that he was not able to keep up with the and service the needs of this decentralized city. And ultimately, um, the company went under, and uh, they ceased running the rails, um, and the freeways took over. So it's an interesting tale, but at one point in the 20s, um, just the numbers are amazing when you read it. Um, the mileage of that they covered, uh, they had... 2,160 daily trains over a 1,000 miles of track. And you just look at the map of how far they covered. It's amazing. Um, but that ended on April 9th, 1961. So, and even just now, LA is starting to make a comeback with their subway system. Um, and, and by next 2015, they will finally have a subway that actually reaches the ocean. Um, something they haven't had really since the the, the collapse of the uh, Pacific Electric System. Today's also another day of note. A day of note, um, historically, and that is um, two major events happened today in history. One is um, very significant: is the settlement uh, um, Appomattox. Um, General Lee surrendered to um, General Grant. And under which, under terms in which the soldiers were allowed passage back to their homes, uh, as long as they did not take up arms against the United States again, um, and we released prisoners to Grant, and so uh, thus brought an end to the four-year bloody civil war. And but unfortunately, it was not an end because um, less than a week later, President Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth. And um, it seems that the fault line of the Civil War seems to still permeate our society um, and uh, something that we must deal with. And part of that uh, was evident on another anniversary today. And today is the anniversary in which uh, Marian Anderson, who was one of the most famous singers of her time, um, was going to sing at the... Um, Daughters of the American Revolution, Constitution Hall. It's a beautiful hall. It's actually where I graduated from college. It's just a few blocks from the White House. And she was going to speak before an integrated audience. And the Daughters of the American Revolution vetoed that. Um, they would only allow her to speak to a segregated audience. And so um, she refused. And um, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt stepped in and got the Department of Interior to... 
uh, arranged for a concert at the Lincoln Memorial. And on this day, um, which was an Easter Sunday in um, 1939, Marian Anderson sang a concert, a free concert, from the Lincoln Memorial before 75,000 people, um, at least, they say. And it was broadcast nationwide via radio. So it was a major moment in um, civil rights in, the, in America. And in, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, um, she would later sing at the March on Washington um, 24 years later uh, with Martin Luther King. And uh, Ms. Anderson began her performance by singing My Country Tizothy, um, which has the, the refrain, Let Freedom Ring. And, of course, Martin Luther King, um, 24 years later, would then um, end his speech by Let Freedom Ring from the prestigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring from the money mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightened Alleghenies of Pennsylvania and all the way to the curvaceous slopes of California. So um, history definitely wove together on that day. But um, we have some other developments I'd like to share with you. And uh, one of which is actually we're going to have an announcement, which um, we We'll have a little bit later on, but um, we're in relation to um, we're going to be trying to solicit input from the congressional candidates for the Silicon open seat that covers Silicon Beach. As you may recall, we've, we've talked a little bit about the fact that Henry Waxman has served this this district and this area um, for forty years, and uh, he's the sixth longest member serving member in Congress, and. But this is a very important district um, since it encompasses both the entertainment capital of, the, of California as well as um, it has the now burgeoning Silicon Beach area, which, which is where tech and entertainment seem to be integrating. And um, so there's a new seat. It's not a new seat, but it's an open seat for the first time in a long time. And there's a number of candidates vying for it. So we're going to try to get their input as to, with the primary of June 3rd, get their input as to who they, how they intend to serve Silicon Beach and um, what they intend to do for the tech community, both here and in Los Angeles, but also um, the, the greater tech community nationwide. Are, are they going to advance uh, the interest of tech in it all. And uh, not to say that that's the only interest, but it's something we, we've been trying to get their input and we're trying to broadcast it here to the extent we can. So we'll have an announcement on that shortly. And um, so look for that. It's going to be, be a fun process. And um, so, but there are other developments at the moment, and one of which the FEC has been very active and uh, making announcements on a number of areas. And one area where you know, Robert Ellis Smith mentioned that, you know, the FTC in the past hasn't been um, very active in terms of giving guidance. And, and I, I kind of understand that viewpoint. I've actually criticized the FTC in, the, um, in some areas where they, they thought that they could have forestalled um, certain practices had they merely just you know blown a whistle or given a warning or provided some guidance so that those within the industry who were trying to push um, actors away from um, that path would actually have more leverage but um, but there it, it is it seems to be a new day at the FTC and one area 
we're seeing this is with the endorsement guidelines. Now, when they came out, um, particularly with respect to blogging guidelines, you know, the FTC was just pillared that they were trying to, you know, jail bloggers and all these awful things. And um, the um, we're going to talk about that after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Guys, are you suffering from FD, fulfillment dysfunction? Let MoldingBox.com's online portal system for inventory, tracking, and returns perform for you. We have the enormous tools you need for complete warehousing, shipping, and handling of all your packages, no matter the size or shape, directly to your customers. MoldingBox.com can also fulfill all your nourishing, nutraceutical, and smooth skincare product desires, including green coffee and Garcinia on demand. Plus, let our in-house printing and CD, DVD manufacturing help you enlarge and maximize your coaching and business opportunity potential. We do everything. Fulfillment, shipping, tracking, inside and out, and all in one place. Moldingbox.com. It's shipping made sexy. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine. Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered, but why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. Relationship chart, or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PPC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. WebmasterRadio.fm presents Marketing Nirvana. Let us help you discover the keys to success in your internet marketing. Marketing Nirvana, on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and um, before the break, we were just talking about the FTC's approach uh, on a regulatory basis and to the extent to which they use um, in 
they use to in, inform and educate the marketplace by enforcement or the extent to which they use it by guidance. And, you know, we talked about um, that earlier with Robert and, uh, you know, there's, there's some benefits to each, I would imagine. But we're seeing more of the FTC trying to provide guidance, especially in new areas such as mobile apps. And another area we're seeing it is with respect to the endorsement guidelines. And I was mentioning before the break that, you know, they got a lot of heat over some of the updates, the endorsement guidelines as it pertains to social media. And then there was a lot of criticism that they were um, being unfair to um, bloggers in particular. And so but the FTC has tread very lightly in, in this regard since then. And we've seen in case after case, you know, starting with um, some of the initial cases involving um, the loft and, um, and the um, Ann Taylor um, chain where um, they, they, they had an instance where they had a, uh, they screened their spring collection and a number of bloggers um, posted and uh, didn't disclose that they had received all these, you know, basically goodie bags from um, Ann Taylor. Um, and the FTC gave them a pass because they found that Ann Taylor had taken certain steps to try to prevent that from happening, including having big signs and um, sending letters to the bloggers and warning them so that more or less this fell into the, you know, stuff happens um, bucket. But um, we've seen several other instances where uh, we've had similar problems and and each time it seems the FTC is is pulling back and and not pulling the trigger but instead giving a warning you know after the company if necessary has made certain changes in this area and and the latest one um, came with um, Cole Hahn and they actually instructed um, their users as part of a promotion to um, post pictures of their shoes on Pinterest and um, so that would uh, make them eligible to receive um, um, part of a contest, be, be participant in a contest. And the uh, the FTC found that because of that, they had not disclosed, had you know, asked that the consumers disclose that they were making such posts in um, as in connection with uh, the. The, the contest that, in essence, what the FTC was doing was is they were getting free advertising without disclosing that it was being you know, paid for by them. And that was found to be deceptive. But, um, yeah, once again, the FTC pulled their punches and did not um, go for a consent decree, but merely issued a, a no-action letter um, to the company because it um, was just explaining those things. And... Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see whether well, what does it take really to violate the endorsement guidelines and in order to actually trigger some reaction by the FTC um, beyond just the consent decree. But maybe you know maybe that's what they're, they're we're waiting to see. We're waiting to see you know what it is, or maybe they're just laying the foundation. Um, you know, something has to be whatever it is. It has to be worse than what they have now. Um, so, but it's we've seen a very active FTC, and uh, I think that's that's reflective of their philosophy. This is an activist FTC, um, and they just released their um, annual report that actually showed you know their level of activity, and um, they've been going after companies 
um, and stepping up enforcement in a number of areas. One area and um, in consumer protection, um, they they recovered two hundred ninety seven million in redress and disgorgement was ordered. They imposed civil fines of twenty million dollars, and uh, the biggest fines went seven point five million. Um, to the Mortgage Investors Corporation of Ohio. Um, Time Warner Cable is in fourth at $1.9 million. And NCO Group, which I believe is a debt collector, they're at $3.2 um, million as well. And uh, we have um, the top consumer complaints this year um, by far were identity theft, um, 14% coming ahead of debt collection than bank, bank lenders um, imposter scams was uh, was up there with six percent, as well as telephone and mobile services without really specifying what those are. But another four percent involved prizes, sweepstakes, and lotteries. So now now you understand this FTC sensitivity to claims involving contests. Um, and then um, it's another states. You know, there's also state laws that regulate it, particularly if you have anything over five thousand dollars, you maybe have. Um, requirements to get a bond or get some kind of filing in at least New York, Florida, <coughs> and possibly Arizona. So um, we're seeing a, an active FTC. Um, enforcement areas and technology account by 8% of their actions. Uh, they're very active in healthcare. 32% of their enforcement actions were in that area. So this is going to be con- continuing, and these are they're increasingly internet savvy. Um, but so we'll be looking for that. But the FTC has one other big announcement, and that is this fall they'll be celebrating their 100th birthday, and they're going to have a, a big um, symposium to celebrate that. Um, they just announced that it will be in the fall, but no, no further details have been announced. But here is a case of less is more, a simple statute that says you, know, you cannot um, engage in deceptive or unfair behavior in interstate commerce has been able to adapt for over a hundred years to regulate everything from AT&T to um, the oil and gas industry to this. And um, it's a remarkable achievement. And um, that's off to um, the drafters and all those who have carried off its mantle over the years. So that's all we have for now this week. And, uh, it's been a pleasure having Robert once again, and we'll be back next week. We'll have a, our announcement in, in the interim, but I look forward to talking to you next week. We'll be have more, more cyber law, the latest developments, and what's going on in cyber law business and policy. And um, if you have any suggestions for people you want to hear, have here on this show, please let us know. We're open to it. Uh, we're always open to hear new voices. But um, until then... This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center here in a very sunny Santa Monica. I'd like to say congratulations to all my friends in Connecticut for their double victory. Only the second time it's happened, and again, the first time was with Connecticut. Um, one of these days, it would be nice if it was Providence, but who knows. But thanks again. Have a great week. Court is adjourned, and we'll see you next week on Cyber Law and Business Report. Be sure to download our mobile app, and we're now available on iHeartRadio with um, Look forward to listening to you and hearing and hearing your feedback from there. So this is Bennett Kelly. We'll see you next week.
This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.